This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy Woo! and sadness oh. and anger. Ah! Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. Ah! But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. Ah. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. The following podcast contains explicit language. Slate's Audiobook Club is sponsored by WhisperSync for Voice, an innovation from Amazon and Audible. If you wish you had more time to read, add narration to your Kindle ebooks, read on your tablet, and when it's time to go, pick up where you left off by listening to audio on your phone. To learn more about WhisperSync for Voice, go to amazon.com slash slateabc. Hi, and welcome to Slate's Audio Book Club for the month of October 2015. I'm Katie Waldman, words correspondent at Slate, and I'm joined today in the DC studio by culture editor Dan Coyce. Hey. Hello. And for the first time ever, live from New York, it's books and culture critic Laura Miller. Welcome to the Audio Book Club, Laura. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be with you. Yeah, we're so glad to have you. So today we'll be discussing The Martian by Andy Weir, and the normal rules about spoilers apply. So if you don't want to know whether astronaut Mark Watney gets rescued or languishes forever on a planet 350 million miles away from the nearest living soul, pause this podcast right now, read the book, and then come back. Before we get started, I also want to note that The Martian has been made into a Ridley Scott movie starring Matt Damon, and Slate has tons of coverage both of the film and of the book that we'll link to on our show page. But now, you guys, let's podcast the shit out of this. Let's podcast the (laughs) shit out of this science book. Yes. So in Andy Wears the Martian, astronaut Mark Watney is stranded on Mars after a dust storm forces his crew to abort their mission. He must keep himself alive for at least four years, using only the supplies left to him. Two rovers, a climate-controlled space tent, lots of complex and finicky equipment, and his own ingenuity and indomitable spirit. As Watney MacGyvers his way through crisis after crisis, the brilliant minds of NASA are looking for ways to bring him home. And Watney's former crew, headed back to Earth in a spaceship called the Hermes, believes he is dead and is racked by sadness and regret. When NASA finally tells them he's alive, they want to go back and rescue him. So the Martian alternates between Earth, Mars, and the Hermes, and its cast consists of the world's most intelligent people being amazing at their high-stakes jobs. Dan, what was it like reading an extremely detailed utopian portrait of people being amazing at their high-stakes jobs? It was (laughs) a marvelous series of science experiments or video game puzzles that I found myself sometimes intrigued by and sometimes bored by. You mentioned how good they are at their jobs, and that means that there are setbacks in this book, but they're not setbacks that necessarily at any point make you fear for the future. They're setbacks that at every point feel like, well, I'm interested to see how they solve this puzzle, how they crack this Rubik's Cube or solve this code. 
Yeah, that's a good point. It's that the suspense of the book is not so much in whether he will overcome the next issue. It's how exactly he'll do it. And so there's kind of like a craftsperson's delight in like the particular mechanism that he uses to survive. And his survival itself never seems really in question. Right. There's no time that you read this book and you're like, geez, man, what if it ends with him dying? <laughs> Laura, did you feel the same way? Yeah, I mean, it's a procedural, so it's kind of like a detective novel in that you're pretty sure the crime is going to be solved. And so the question is how they're going to do it. But I nevertheless, I guess maybe being a little claustrophobic and also sort of afraid of suffocating to death, I That's just found— a very found, specific fear, Laura. <laughs> yeah, I just found certain scenes like the one when he's in the airlock and then the— Hab suddenly just blows away across the landscape, and then there's a leak in the airlock, and he has to figure out how to patch it. That was a bit of a nail-biter for me. I love that you refer to it as a mystery, because that really is what it read like to me. In the way of a mystery novel, right, you're given certain clues, and readers of differing levels of ability will be able to put those clues together better than others, and be more or less surprised by the way that each individual little puzzle gets solved. Now, I think one of the frustrations for me in reading the book was that when I read a mystery, you know, a traditional mystery where a lot of the puzzles hidden within it are often dependent on character or on real-world plot mechanics of the type that I understand, I often do feel like I am picking up the clues as they go along. And so then when the solution comes, I find myself pleasantly surprised but not baffled by that solution. Whereas in this book, because I don't know the science necessarily, I didn't pick up those clues. It didn't make any difference to me when I you know, learned that a certain material is the fuel of the rocket booster. And it didn't set off a little alarm bell in my head that said, oh, maybe he'll use that in such and such a way later. And so each little solution came to me as a complete surprise and as a sort of baffling, oh, I guess he solved this through science. But science, because of the, I'm the person I am, might as well have been synonymous with magic to me in this book. I agree. And it's interesting because um, one word that's been used to describe this book is Holmesian in that it seems much less concerned with what the main character is feeling than with what he's thinking. And it's all about the way his brain works in this set of situations. And I would have thought that I would not have enjoyed this book. Actually, Dan, I read your review of it and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to hate this book. And I was weirdly riveted just by, like, as you said, Laura, the process by which he works through things. But I do actually want to ask you guys, I mean, do you think that there's this bias that emotions are more interesting or more appropriately the subject of novels than intellectual work, like abstract theoretical work? I don't think that he's actually doing anything that abstract. It's very practical. There's a, a kind of narrative that works this way where it's like, then you do this, and then you do that, and then you do the other. And I've been long aware that I find this particular type of storytelling, along with a lot of other types of storytelling, really appealing and sort of lulling and fascinating. So even when I didn't really understand what he was doing, there was something about it that appealed to me and reminded me of a bunch of other books that I'd read parts of the Stieg Larsson trilogy where 
uh, Elizabeth Salander goes to Ikea and they describe every single thing that she buys. Mm. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I remember reading that going, this should be boring, but instead it's enthralling. Why? Why? <laughs> and I definitely felt that way about this. But, you know, you raise an interesting point. He doesn't appear to have a great emotional range in this story, although, of course, we are only getting what he puts down in his log, so we don't know what he's thinking when he's sort of lying around with nothing else going on. That's true. That There's a bit of a filter between us and the actual emotions he's presumably feeling. And it's also true that if he had greater emotional range, that wouldn't necessarily make it a greater book because any normal person would just basically be panicking and terrified all the time, which is not necessarily entertaining over the course of, you know, 400 souls on Mars. But I do, in answer to your question, Katie, I do prioritize emotion over intellectual mechanics of this type. Like there can be a real thrill in an intellectual exploration when that's the engine driving a novel. But I didn't have the same kind of thrill from what seemed to me to just be sort of like gears clicking into place over and over again in more and more complicated ways. And so I ended up finding like the scenes that were more almost action movie-ish, like that scene when the airlock blows off that you mentioned, Laura, or even the final connection up in space. Those were the scenes I found the most satisfying in the book because they just happened fast and compelled me through their immediate intense danger. I will jump in and I will just, I will take a little bit of an issue with something that you said in your review, Dan. Yeah, do it. You know, Mark Watney doesn't evince a lot of emotion in his log entries. And it's definitely true that you could look at what he's undergoing as a really severe case of solitary confinement and wonder how come he's not going completely insane. But I think that it is partly that focus on the procedures that keeps him from totally losing it. But also, I don't think that when you're in a crisis like that, you actually think about all that much. I mean, I think that in a weird way, it's quite realistic. And it reminded me of a story that a friend of mine who did a book about a Eastern European village that was occupied by the Nazis. This friend had interviewed a bunch of survivors of these events, and they were telling a horrible story about a particular slaughter, and then a bunch of people who still lived in the village were forced laborers. And the person who was recording it for him said, when you ran into the people that you knew from your life before on the street, and you'd all been through so much, and you'd suffered so much, what did you talk about? And the person said, oh, we just talked about food, <laughs> where you could get it, where was the last time we got it, where you might be able to get it in the future. And that was all we talked about. And I kind of feel like that's what Mark Watney's going through. You know, one, he just has to think about, I mean, there's that scene where he's in the airlock, which did terrify me, where he said, well, it's leaking, and then I have to figure out how I'm going to get the hab back. And that seems impossible, but first I'm going to deal with the leak. And there's several points in the plot where he does that, where it seems like there's no way he can get out of it. And he says, I don't think I can get out of this, but the first thing I have to deal with is X. And then he deals with X. And then later he figures out how to deal with Y and Z. But that seemed to me weirdly accurate in a way for how people 
deal with living in a state of permanent life-threatening crisis. And that's the overall structure of the book, too, right? He's immediately faced with an impossible task. The impossible task is surviving on Mars long enough to get rescued. And he approaches it just the way that you say, you know, that is impossible, so I won't think about that. I will think about the next thing I need to do. The next thing I need to do is to, you know, get this thing out of my stomach and staple myself closed. The next thing I need to do after that is check all my systems. And so in that way, you know, the book is a basically like a 7,000 item to do checklist that yeah. Mark Watney <laughs> like ticks off one by one by one by one until the last thing is get rescued by my friends. I agree that this is a plausible coping mechanism, but I also don't think that Andy Weir's priority was psychological realism. So the extent to which this is actually a fair way to depict this character, like it's kind of accidental. Like I just don't think that the author is interested in showing a very emotionally well-rounded person. He's much more interested in the formulae and the solutions and the science. Right. Um, and so judging the book that way, as I often did, felt at times unfair to me because that's not his priority. And yeah. he's very good often at the things that are his priority. And so as a reader, the best way, obviously, to experience this book is to settle into its rhythm and embrace hmm. its puzzles in a way that the both of you seem to have been able to do better than me. Well, actually, <laughs> I'm not quite sure because you were talking about just taking the very minute, like the short view as opposed to the long view. And here's the next thing I need to do. Here's the next thing I need to do. And there were moments reading this book where I just felt so existentially depressed. Just like, and for what? You know, like if you <laughs> if you don't think that you're actually going to survive and you are just doing these things because they seem like the rational thing to do in the moment with no actual end game, it just, it struck me as like, maybe this really depressing parable about life in a world of no meaning. Like, I don't know. I just, I found it sometimes really, really sad because you imagine that you do all these things to survive for something. And here's a character who we don't know anything about his life at home, but he doesn't seem like uh, he has a family. Like he has parents, but he doesn't have a wife or children. And um, or friends, even. Yeah, he like he has one flashback where he says that seeing the timestamp on one of one of his pieces of equipment reminds him of like an old home video that his father shot of him. And I like gasped when I read that because oh my gosh, <laughs> it's this piece of his other life that didn't exist before that moment. Something about the lack of context made me feel really depressed. Well, there's the devotion to his co-workers, right? I mean, mm -hmm. that seems to be the formative relationship. I mean, he jokes with them. He has a kind of easiness with them, even when they're, you know, communicating with his actual crewmates, when they're communicating by typing, or even with NASA, when he's communicating by, like, pointing a rover camera at a hexadecimal system. Like, there's an easiness and a lightness to his communications with them that suggests that those are the important relationships in his life. And that's not implausible. I think that that's true for a lot of people. I think for a lot of people, their work relationships, their work is the thing that matters most to them. And it's the thing that they thrive at. And the relationships at work are the things that, that are the easiest to them. So maybe this isn't the worst situation for him to be in. Like he's doing his, <laughs> he's doing his job and he loves it. And right. this is like what he was made for. Right. And like, like NASA can oversee him and and micromanage to some extent, but then he passively, aggressively shorts out his uh, 
Rover, so they can't talk to him anymore, <laughs> and he can just do whatever the hell he wants. Yeah, he does have a peculiar relationship to authority because yeah. he mm-hmm. both talks about how many geniuses there are in NASA figuring out what he needs to do, and then he also bridles whenever they tell him to do something, and he complains about the sort of bureaucratic and overly cautious nature of their decision-making. So there's a weird sort of independence issue there that you think of as being really typical of someone in the military. I mean, the same with the camaraderie with the rest of the crew and the way that they will disobey certain orders only if it means saving someone else from their group, but the way that they have complete and total trust in their commander otherwise are very idealized pictures of what it's like to be in a you know, a platoon or something like that. Even the way he describes NASA equipment with its like stupid NASA name and then gives the real world name or tells right. you that it cost mm-hmm. hundreds of thousands of dollars because NASA bought it. Like he certainly has a sort of infantryman's grim view of the foolishness of the enterprise in which he is occupied, but he also believes in it and takes it seriously, which I find interesting. And that sort of bridling against authority while still being brothers in arms with the people he works with, you know, suggests to me like who this book is like ideally suited for, who is both the subject and the intended target of this book are, you know, obviously scientists, right? And people who work in teams that are driven towards some particular purpose and people who are driven by those jobs. Like, I feel like those are the people most likely to embrace this book. And I think that to a large extent, those are the people who have embraced this book. All right, let's take a quick ad break. This episode of the Audio Book Club was brought to you by WhisperSync for Voice, an Amazon and Audible innovation. Wish you had more time to read? Here's how you can create more book time. Add narration to your Kindle eBooks. Read on your tablet, and when it's time to go, pick up where you left off by switching to audio and listening on your phone. The best part is that the app knows where you are in the book, so you'll pick up the story right where you stopped. Enjoy those books you've been meaning to read but just haven't had the time. Learn how to add narration to your Kindle eBooks by visiting www.amazon.com/slateabc. Even better, upgrading your ebook with narration is irresistibly affordable. It's called WhisperSync for Voice, and to learn more about this amazing technology and how to add narration to your own Kindle ebooks, go to www.amazon.com/slateabc. All right, back to our show. I think that this book is a nerd wish fulfillment fantasy, and so the people that it is really addressed to are nerds. I mean, he he has all these comments where he says, I didn't get a lot of action when I was back on Earth. Like, imagine that. I'm a botanist and a mechanical engineer, and the ladies weren't lined up outside my door, and I played a lot of Dungeon and Dragons. And there's this kind of, like, he's poking fun at himself. He doesn't seem resentful about it. But there's, like, a faint dissatisfaction with his social life back on Earth. And then suddenly, he's on this other planet, and the eyes of the entire world are on him, and everyone is rooting for him, and China is suspending its top-secret space initiative (laughs) in order to send him supplies. And it's, like, such a fantasy of the entire world is behind me. I'm acting heroically on this enormous screen that's broadcasted everywhere. And I didn't begrudge it this because it was actually kind of sweet, but it felt like a nerd wish fulfillment. Well, and the entire world is behind him, but can't actually affect anything he does. Mm, He still gets to work in perfect solitude, 
perfecting the things that he is doing, but then everyone gets to watch and admire him for doing those things so perfectly. It's like the next wave of reality shows, like Survivor Mars <laughs> or something. It's an engineer's book, I think. That's what I kept thinking through all of it. Anybody, it could be a programmer or it could be someone who designs machinery or someone who works in aerospace, but basically someone whose job is to make something that works. I think that there's a whole community of readers who sort of belong to professions like that who are really avid readers and who often feel like their view of the world doesn't get represented very often. And so it's a fantasy that the whole world is watching, but it's also a fantasy about life reduced to negotiating with a bunch of objects. It's a, like a frontier fantasy. Um, you know, so many of the fantasies that we have now are about eliminating all of the overwhelming complexity of modern life, whether it's by turning everybody into zombies or having everything wiped out by a virus and so, you know, you're the last man on earth or whatever. It's about subtracting these overwhelming social and economic and political situations and just having to deal with the things that are right in front of you. I mean, it's such a book about things and dumb things that we sort of are cheap to us now. I mean, the things in our lives are, are so cheap, easily replaceable, and there's so many of them that we they're filling up our houses, whether we like it or not. And then suddenly he's in this world where every single object is filled with a sort of life or death significance. I think that you're exactly right, but it's fascinating to me that all the other books I can think of and all the other sort of media I can think of in that same world, you know, something like The Road or Station Eleven or The Walking Dead, those all use a world denuded of choices to like reinforce the primacy of human connection. Like The Road is about how even in a world turned to shit, a man and his son can forge that sort of primal bond. Whereas this seems to be a world mostly denuded of things to enforce the bond between a guy and the few things he has left. Yes. Yeah. And it's so true. He personifies his equipment. Like he'll say, the water reclaimer did its job admirably or like the beautiful probe worked perfectly. And you almost get the sense that like he is on this team of mechanical objects yeah. and he's projecting personalities onto them. And it's like a comedy of manners between a man and his CO2 <laughs> yeah. reclaimer. Yeah, I love that. They become almost like characters in and of themselves. But what this reminded me of more than even those things that you mentioned, Dan, was the most recent Neil Stevenson novel, Seven Eves, which is like a sort of blown up version of this where in the course of just a few months, the earth is going to be destroyed in a rain of fire. And so everybody on the planet has to sort of create this arc and this mining space station attached to an asteroid. And then what happens afterwards when the human race slowly rebuilds itself? So that has a lot of this sort of like, how do we deal with the fact that there are these objects flying around in space, basically like bullets here and there. They're just flying around. And if they hit you, they'll kill you. And how do we deal with cosmic radiation? How do we deal with this problem? How do we do we deal with that problem? But it also, because it's a society, which all of these other cultural forms that we've talked about are, there's also other people that have to be dealt with. So 
with, say, The Walking Dead, which is basically a Western, everyone's reduced to like Dodge City once again, and everyone plays sort of the same roles. And instead of Indians, you have zombies. But, you know, it's basically the same situation. How are we going to build a society in a place where society doesn't exist anymore. One thing I'd love to talk about with you guys is humor in this book and whether or not it works. I am divided. I think there were some parts where I laughed out loud and other parts where I was very frustrated because I felt he was straining to be funny and it was not. But I also think that humor is probably 70% of the characterization that happens in this book. And I, wonder... <laughs> I love that you've quantified it, Katie. It's very much in the spirit of the book. Yes. Well, I actually went through word by word and figured out that it's 72.7%. <laughs> My calculations are off. I'm all... We're all going to die, guys. Well, I think it's a good question. The humor at times personalizes him, right? We can empathize with his desire to use humor to defuse the situation sometimes. But the book also uses structural humor in a way that felt really distancing to me at times. One section that I noted when I was like reading this book the second time is there's it's on page 34, and it's at the end of one entry. He says, things are finally going my way. In fact, they're going great. I have a chance to live after all. And then the beginning of the next entry is, I'm fucked and I'm going to die. So the gag of that is re- it's an extremely simple gag, right? It's the it's playing off the initial optimism with something else having gone wrong and causing him to become totally panicked. But within the actual like framework of this novel that we're meant to believe that this is a human being, you know, experiencing these things and telling us about them and to the extent that that first line is supposed to be interpreted somewhat contemporaneously, like it's a thing he's saying right now, he's panicked right now in the moment as he enters this log entry, it doesn't work at all. It it just tends to pull me away and make me think of him even as less of a person than I did before and more as a stick figure that an author is using to move around to tell the kinds of jokes he wants to tell. And those kinds of like reducing humor moments really drove me crazy throughout the book. Whereas I liked the humor that, that mostly seemed to come between characters and his interactions with NASA and the way that he actually deals with with those people, the way the crew members joke with each other, even in dire circumstances like that read to me as funny ease under pressure and not an author throwing jokes in because that's his primary way of communicating as well. That's very true. I thought probably the funniest piece of character-based humor in the book was the part where they're sending up the iris resupply vessel and everyone's very caught up in that. And meanwhile, the guy who has had the idea for having Hermes come back and get Mark is working on his calculations and he's just oblivious to what's going on around them, even though he and they're oblivious. They don't know what he's doing. He has to take vacation time so he can work on the problem. And so he's just like Mark in a way on his own planet, but he's saving the day. And there was humor in that about both the way the engineer works, just totally absorbed in a world of his own in this problem, and then also the way the rest of the world doesn't notice that the engineer is going to save the day. I sort of felt like that was the, more than anything else in the novel, that was the heart of the book, that, you know, the case for this way of being in the world as having its own virtues. And I could feel the author 
in that, you know, both loving that character for being so kind of weirdly dysfunctional, but then also so gifted. I agree with that. And that's a much more sophisticated interpretation or analysis of the way humor is working. But I thought you were going to mention the part where Watney is told via instant message, like space instant message, that the probe named after the Greek goddess who is the goddess of rainbows, Iris, is coming for him. And he (laughs) says, great, gay probe coming to save me. Got it. (laughs) Also a good line. So, Katie, what did you think about the humor in this? Did it play for you, or did you just feel like it was just a series of dad jokes over and over and over again? I thought it was very earnest humor. I liked some of the darkness of parts of it, but other parts... I remember someone would say something mildly funny in a NASA situation room, and then we'd get a line that says, a chuckle rippled through the crowd. (laughs) And that just annoyed me, because I felt like he was trying so hard to make the humor mean more than it needed to mean and to sort of establish his own identity as a writer on this humor as well as the character's identity on the humor. It struck me as a little bit forced, and I was willing to appreciate it up to a point. But then when he kept sort of highlighting it and drawing our attention to it, it started to grate on me. I touched on this a little bit on my piece, and I didn't sort of go into it to the extent that I initially thought I might. But You know, I referenced this XKCD comic in my piece. It's an online comic strip that is very focused on math, science, and engineering and software development. Like, not all the jokes are about that, and it has a certain amount of wonder about the world at large. But it really is, at its heart, a comic about that, about the same kinds of people and ideas that this book is about. And the jokes in this really reminded me of of XKCD panels. You know, there's a kind of cheerful undercutting of one's own self and a sense that complicated concepts explained really simply are in and of themselves funny and delightful, but also scenes like, you know, the one thing that I quoted in my piece, which seemed exactly like basically an XKCD panel come to life was the moment where Watney like wakes up on the planet after he's been knocked unconscious in the initial windstorm. And he like, walks over a hill to see what's going on and it's like the most awful moment of his entire life it's a moment that he learns that the other astronauts are gone and he's been left for dead on mars and in the book it goes the hab was intact yay and the mav was gone boo i mean that's not a way that a person would talk but it is almost exactly the way that a comic strip panel and particularly an XKCD comic strip panel would deal with that exact same situation. And so I have no idea if he's an XKCD reader other than that he almost definitely is just based on his demographic. But this felt to me in a way like a book that was designed in a lab for that specific person, for the people who read (laughs) XKCD, who love it, who are on Reddit, who love it, who are, who may or may not be scientists or engineers, but if they're not scientists and engineers, certainly wish they were and respect them way more than they respect anyone else. And maybe even for a reader who cares less whether Watney makes it than what happens while he's stranded on Mars. Right. I consistently read through that as a form of stoicism. I guess if you do work with things all the time, they're always sort of recalcitrant and they break or you do something stupid like when he touched the drill to whatever that mylar was and it shorted out the pathfinder. You know, you just kind of live in this world that is constantly telling you that you screwed up or, you know, this thing breaks at the worst possible moment. So he has this sort of weird 
stoic quality. I think I probably more freely interpreted those log entries as a way that he had of talking to himself rather than his raw experience of the events that happened. Yeah, I think that that's fair. And I'm, and that's definitely, I think, the way that Weir presents it and wants us to read it. And I think that's the way that most people who have enjoyed this book read it. Either they read it as stoicism or they don't read it for characterization at all. Right. Mm. And either way, it's totally satisfying. I have a question for you guys that completely preoccupied me by the time I finished this book. It sort of started growing at the point that I realized that he was really going to be rescued, although, of course, I always knew that he would be. You know, the unspoken thing in all of this that I really, really want to know, the novel that I really want to read as much as I did enjoy this, is not what he was really thinking and feeling on that planet, but what it was, his life was like after he got back to Earth. And he's the $200 million man. And so many people have given up so much to save his life. Mm. So then what is he going to do with it? Yeah. Have you seen the movie, Laura? I have not, no. The movie, spoiler alert, it doesn't end as the book does with what I believe to be one of the all-time worst last lines in literature. (laughs) It ends with him actually back on Earth and like doing astronaut training, like his first day as a teacher at NASA Astronaut Training School. It's like the ultimate nerd fulfillment. Like he is now surrounded by attractive young students who are looking at him awestruck and soaking up his every word. And he cracks a light joke and they all laugh merrily. (laughs) And then he gets serious and tells them how important their training is. And then that's the end of the movie. So that's the life it imagines for him, which was deeply disappointing to me. Like I really wanted to see him like, I don't know, like, like doing vitamin water ads (laughs) and, uh, (laughs) and I don't know what, like just rolling in chicks. Or just the subject of magazine profiles that are basically asking, was it really worth it to bring him back? You know, I mean, that's a huge burden. You know, at least nobody died in saving him. So he doesn't have to deal with that. But he's going to be the subject of so much scrutiny that that in and of itself, it's not like he's just going to be a hero within NASA and so he gets to be kind of the old codger that all the young recruits look up to. He's also going to be the subject of all this attention from all over the world. And I just think it would make him completely crazy. And also, I think this is a product of the idealism of the book. Like we have the governments of the world rallying to save this one individual and he sort of emerges as this one of one, this irreplaceable human soul. And this is like the only place really where the kind of rational utilitarian ethos of the book falls away a little bit. And you're like, hey, we must sacrifice everything. We must risk the lives of these five other astronauts. We are going to do everything we possibly can just to rescue this one guy. And I got to say, like, it did feel a little bit jarring compared to the hyper sort of utilitarian and rational philosophy of the rest of the book. Yeah. Well, in the time it took them to rescue him, 43,000 people died of cholera. (laughs) Yeah. Nobody at any point suggests that the money spent to save him could save so many more lives elsewhere. God, yeah, this is a great think piece that I need to go assign like as soon as we're (laughs) finished recording this. They shouldn't have saved Mark Watney. Here's why. Yeah. I wanted to throw in a plug for a book that is a great, if you like this, you might like even more book. It's a trilogy, in fact, by Kim Stanley Robinson, who's a really great science fiction writer. He wrote, I think, the definitive fictional look at 
Mars and specifically a Mars colonization. It's three books called Red Mars, Blue Mars, and Green Mars. And they stretch about 200 years into the future from basically now. And they are as rigorously scientific, if necessarily speculative, as this book is. They're extremely well-researched. They also have the addition of having great characters and emotions and stuff. But they present an extremely plausible, yet also amazing case for what actual Mars colonization might look like. And they were the books that I kept coming back to as I was reading this book and thinking, you know, they're obviously very different kinds of books, but those are the books set on Mars that like that pushed all my buttons because they give you process and they give you problem solving. But I also got a sense that they were very interested in the cosmic as well and the personal. He's a really good writer, Kim Stanley Robinson. And I would also just add to that, that if you really like the completely grounded and you know, the completely non-speculative aspect of the technological procedural stuff, then Seven Eves by Neil Stevenson We'll scratch that itch as well and additionally have a lot about character in it as well. Yeah, I actually wanted to return to that idea of the ineffable and wonder that you wrote about, Dan, in your review. Because there were, albeit cheesy moments that in the book that sort of panned out, like when the third person voice came in, that I found very striking. And I'm thinking of one on page 309 where suddenly we go from – he is making jokes about TV sitcoms he's watching and talking about planning his next few days or souls. And then suddenly the next line is, for millions of years, the rim of the crater had been under constant attack from wind. It eroded the rocky crust the way a river cuts through a mountain range. After aeons, it finally breached the edge. And it goes into this long, I wouldn't call it like lyrical or poetic, but very disembodied um, mm -hmm. third person voice about sort of the landscape and the geography of Mars. And it was so strange to me. I was sort of thinking, is that you, God? Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> did you guys have a reaction to these strange... I did. I felt exactly the same way. I was like, wait a minute, who is this? Because we had first person Mark, and then we had a pretty close, um, whatever, free indirect discourse of the people on Earth. And then... All of a sudden, we have this weird bird's eye view of Mark and his – that's the point where the rover tips mm -hmm. over, right? And yeah. and I remember thinking at that point, well, why did he go to this – why did the camera just pull so far back right here? Well, what's this about? You know, it was a weird choice. You know, when you read it, I feel the sort of almost weird – grandeur of it. But at the time, I just remember being really confused because all of a sudden, very, very late in the novel, a new narrative approach is introduced for a reason that's just not clear. But that narrator is there earlier in the book. It's there in two really? other places. Yes. It's there right before the hab, mm -hmm. the airlock. But he's italicized, up. this narrator Oh, he's this italicized point. there. I see. And he's there right when the spacecraft launches, the first attempt at a launch to send stuff up to him. And in both those cases, that same omniscient narrator that sees across time and space tells us the backstory of a failure, tells us the backstory of how the HAB material got stretched just a little tiny bit too much, uh. which over the course of weeks and months led to it exploding. It showed us why the choice to make a single, to make the, the food stuffs in the rocket that went up liquid as opposed to solid. Oh, right. And then how the one 
screw that was just slightly off, how that caused total failure of the spaceship. So it's these moments of systemic failure where Andy Weir feels it's necessary to pull back and give us a view of how the catastrophes that face him are not always due to his mistakes, but sometimes just due to basically unstoppable forces going back days or weeks or even centuries in this case. And the world yeah. of objects that is yeah. the world that he has to negotiate. Yeah. This is how you can tell that I listened to the audiobook version of it because, I, of course, I wasn't aware of italicized passages. So <laughs> excuse me for making that mistake. <laughs> I started to think of it as sort of the voice of Mars or of entropy or just of whatever kind of whatever lurks at the edges of this book and doesn't really make it in. But whatever like antagonism and sort of deathless, ageless, ice cold, scary thing that is supposed to be in the back of our mind so that he doesn't even need to reference it, but is supposed to sort of make the solemn stakes of this clear at every moment. And I really... Like, I wanted a little bit more of that, but I found... You're giving me chills just describing it. Yeah, I know. It's like the wonderful. Reaper playing chess, and Mark Watney yeah. is, like, fiddling with tools, and he has no idea the Reaper's still playing chess. Yeah, no, it's it's like when this voice came in, I, like, pictured this dark force just laughing and saying, you think... Because there's, there's so many variables in the, in the scenes that you described, Dan, like... But we didn't account for the sludge becoming more liquid and then pressing against the bolt. And it's just how could any human possibly control all those variables? And there's definitely a strain in this book that says, but we can, if we're brilliant enough, if we're resourceful enough, we can get all of this under control and bend nature to our will. But I think there's this kind of like chaos demon in the wings that's saying, no, no, you actually can't. And it's not like Mark has achieved immortality or anything. He's lived to die another day on Earth. That's a fair point. Yes. Although, but yes, but the book definitely comes down on the side of that if everything goes exactly right, you can push that chaos demon away. Mm. And I mean, the, part of the point of the book is that we're meant to understand that they come essentially inches away from everything being for naught. That if anything had gone differently, over the course of those 300 or whatever souls, even a tiny bit that his outstretched hand would not have met the commander's outstretched hand, and that would have been it. He would have been flying off in space, and too bad for everyone. Well, thank you so much, guys. I'm going to ask a two-pronged recommendation question, which you can probably predict. First off, would you recommend the book? And second, would you recommend the movie? I would recommend both on the grounds that it's not like reading this book is an ordeal. And for many people, it's an incredibly enjoyable experience. I found it annoying in a lot of ways. And I think that if you're listening to this and you haven't read it, you'll know whether this book is going to be <laughs> annoying to you. But if anything about this book appeals to you even a little, you'll have a great time. Like it's an extremely well-tooled machine. Oh, and the movie, definitely. Yeah. The movie's great. I have not seen the movie, but I would recommend the book as well. And I would recommend that if someone has the opportunity, even if they think they might not be interested in it, they give it a chance. Because I keep hearing from people who say, I never thought I would like something like this, and I liked this, which is kind of a weird testimony mm -hmm. to the power of his narrative skills, I think. You don't really see the wires of it moving that much, but clearly if he's got the ability to make people who don't really want to read about oxygen regulators completely gripped by his narrative, he knows what he's doing. Yeah, he's doing something right. Yeah. What about you, Katie? I would definitely recommend the movie. I love the movie. I would, with reservations, recommend this book. I'm not sorry that I read it. 
There are a lot of great books out there. I was sort of <laughs> I was sort of hoping that maybe there would be like The Venetian, a woman stranded on Venus and their stars would cross and then there would be like an intergalactic love story. Oh. But I think my space my space brothers are a little bit more on the like fantasy side than the hyper realist side, but for what it was, um I thought it did a really great job, as he says about the probe. It did its job admirably. It does do its job admirably. (laughs) It worked at uh, at like 98% efficiency throughout the entire process. Indeed. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, guys. This was really fun. Thanks, Katie. Thank you. A program note. Our next audiobook club selection is A Little Life by Hanya Yanagihara. Read it and join us for our discussion in November. The homepage for the Slate book review is slate.com slash books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audiobook Club at slate.com slash abc. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slateabc. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audiobook Club in the iTunes store. And don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Slate's Audiobook Club is part of the Panoply Network. Find out more about all of our great podcasts at panoply.fm. Our producer is Abdul Rufus. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Dan Coyce and Laura Miller, I'm Katie Waldman. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.